Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsor, Allergan. Welcome to New Retina Radio, and we are coming to you live uh, here with three wonderful and esteemed retina specialists. Um, we're going to be focusing our attention on the COVID-19 or coronavirus outbreak and how it's affecting retina practices throughout the United States. With me today, we have Dr. Rishi Singh from the Cole Eye Institute. We have Dr. Nancy Holkamp, who is from the Pepos Vision Institute in St. Louis, Missouri. And finally, we have Dr. Sunir Garg, who is with Mid-Atlantic Retina and the Wills Eye Institute. First of all, I want to thank you all for joining us today and taking time out of your uh, busy clinics and uh, wish you all very well, your family's health and, and stay healthy and safe. We're going to start out first with, uh, with Rishi. Uh, Rishi, let's talk a little bit about what the Cole Eye Institute is doing to ensure safety in the clinic, not just for the physicians, but also for the patients. Yeah, so on, um, basically on entry to the Cole Institute, we're checking temperatures of all of our patients now uh, and our caregivers. Uh, we make sure that they are of normal, uh, normal, normal temperature when they walk in the door. Uh, we do ask questions regarding URI-like symptoms. We offer masks to patients when they walk in the door. Um, they're allowed to wear masks if they like. When they come to our clinics, we're really maintaining social distancing in our waiting room. We're fortunate to have a large facility where we can spread them out and have the patients to be seen in a very, very wide space. And so it's easy for us to kind of push that and onto patients and patients are willing to do that. In the exam rooms, we're really uh, have installed slit lamp uh, bio filters in front of them. So breathe adapters so that we can prevent ourselves from exchanging stuff for the patient. We talk to the patient about not talking during the actual lamp examination. So we don't exchange active um, things between ourselves and the patient. And we take a really high rate of sterility. Um, it used to be that we clean the rooms off just the slit lamp or something very, very uh, simple with alcohol at the time of uh, after the examination. Now we're washing the chair, the, the armrest, even the actual breathe adapter that's on the slit lamp to make sure we don't pass that on to patients. And Rishi, are you all doing any testing of asymptomatic physicians or asymptomatic uh, medical assistants or anything along those lines? No, not at this time. And we're fortunate again to have an eight hour turnaround time for our COVID-19 testing. So it's, it's really available for us to get. We're trying to pick the individuals that would benefit the most because we don't want to overwhelm the system. Clearly, if you're asymptomatic and young, um, there's no indication for testing at this point. It's when you're symptomatic and you're either young or have significant comorbidities as well, that that is where the testing really matters and could potentially be the difference between life and death because we know that the respiratory phase of this disease is quite rapid. Within 24 hours, people can rapidly decompensate. So really, if you don't have any uh, symptoms, that's not an indication for testing in our, our situation right now. Do you have any affected uh, staff members at the Cole Eye Institute? No, we're fortunate right now, John, to not have anyone affected. Um, you know, we are testing throughout our enterprise for people that do become symptomatic, and there are caregivers that do have positivity of disease. It's a smallish number, um, but it's growing. And 
this is only the beginning. I have to be honest with you. We are seeing just the beginnings of what we're, what we're seeing in New York and other places. It's only going to grow over the next three to five weeks. We're expecting the peak actually in Ohio to be in the first week of May, according to our calculations right now. So we're not, um, not going to see the peak for a little bit of time. So we need to do the best we can to get geared up and ready for that scenario when it comes through. And are you changing the way you see patients, the types of patients you see? Are you rescheduling patients? And how are you handling surgeries at this time? Yeah, so we're following the AO's recommendations to cancel all elective cases. We're doing emergent surgeries like RDs and endophthalmitis, uh, glaucoma patients who have really high pressures who come in and need surgery. I did five cases yesterday um, with, with patients in the OR for all of those reasons. In clinic, we're deferring as many of the uh, routine examinations as we can. For example, the routine diabetics and things like that. We have to see our AMD patients. We're deferring or really aggressively treating, extending them as much as we possibly can. For the DME patients, there's less evidence that an injection matters or a deferral of the injection matters. Um, I have data that we actually just worked on recently at Cole that looked at a three-month deferral, unintended lapse in treatment of some patients. And the numbers are pretty significant and show there's really no detriment when you compare them to cohorts who followed up over a year of time. So it's, it's really not compelling evidence to show us that an injection or even two injections will, will matter. Even a lapse of three months will not matter for that DME patient. So we're using that data to our benefit to kind of defer our DME patients who obviously have other systemic comorbidities that we're worried about in them. So are you reaching out proactively to those patients and set and calling them and saying, don't come in, or are you going ahead and seeing them and then rescheduling them at a later date? We're, we're actually deferring them right now actively as a group. We're also going virtual with a lot of our visits too. You know, we didn't uh, think we could do that and uh, not in retina per se, but uh, we've done a few retina visits that way, but all more in, in plastics and in ant seg. Uh, we can do a lot of those things virtually and, and do a great job of that. We've pushed our virtual platform out there. Um, we're using that with our optometrists and our general ophthalmologists right now. So they're not seeing routine cases, but maybe they're seeing more of those red eye visual complaint sort of patients. And that's a really uh, great way we've been able to use technology in the patient's home to help us see patients right now this, this sort of time. That's fantastic. So walk us through just briefly what a wet AMD patient is going to experience when they show up to clinic for, let's say, a routine follow-up examination and possible injection under these protocols. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a deferral of the OCT. Um, really, we're going to inject them anyway. Uh, we don't see the point of bringing them to a different place, another contaminant, potentially another, another person talking to them. Maybe that person gets affected streamlining their visits as much as we possibly can, not moving them from the room they're in when they first come to us. So if the technician works them up in a room, we basically go in that room ourselves rather than moving them to like a sub area for dilation or something like that. We don't do that anymore. We really try to streamline or make it as, as simple as an approach we can. And that's worked well, I think, so far for our patients. And are you wearing masks and gloves or what kind of protection are you wearing? Yeah, you know, initially when this came out, I wasn't sure what to do. There isn't a lot of recommendations out there. And for the outpatient uh, practice, probably an N95 mask in the asymptomatic patient is not necessary, but I would love to hear from my colleagues about what they're doing. I wear a, I, just a surgical mask in clinic. It's really to protect my sort of T-zone area from 
getting uh, any sort of viral particles in and around my eyes, nose, or face. I wear goggles as well. And then um, I, I also wear a cap just to make sure I don't get it in and around myself. And I'm wearing scrubs now to clinic and um, I'm washing them before I even come home so I don't bring anything to my home. Um, my wife is a physician too. So she's working actively in a hospital scenario. So both of us have the ability to bring things home and we both don't want to do that to our family members. Wonderful. Um, let's turn our attention now to Nancy Holcamp. Nancy's in St. Louis and uh, St. Louis is, is probably on the lower end as far as being impacted so far, I would assume, Nancy. I, last I checked about 70 cases far uh, positive in St. Louis. Uh, Nancy, how has your practice changed since this has all started? Well, John, you know, I'm a, in a multi-specialty group. Uh, we're fairly small. We have two optometrists, three anterior segment um, cataract cornea refractive surgeons, and then me as a single retina specialist. And we have two offices, a main office where our ASC is, um, and uh, a smaller satellite. We shut down the satellite office. Uh, one of the reasons was we're only providing emergency care and we try to do emergency care out of our main office, but also the smaller office didn't have enough waiting room to keep people with the proper social distancing. And six feet is actually a, a pretty fair distance. Um, so my colleagues, the optometrists and the anterior segment surgeons, they're not seeing patients anymore. Um, they have one doctor who is on call and sees a couple of patients a day, two or three patients a day for emergencies. Um, my clinic is still functioning four days a week. We're treating Friday, Saturday, Sunday, just like a weekend. And on those four days a week, we're triaging patients, calling them proactively to determine whether they have to come in or if it can be pushed off eight to 10 weeks. Um, because I, I think Rishi's right. This is really just the beginning and we're, um, we're definitely gonna have to plan uh, to take these measures for at least another uh, month or two. Um, but the problem's growing in St. Louis. I, I, we haven't seen the worst of it yet. Now, Nancy, a question from Joe Boston. This is particularly uh, apt for you. You're very involved in clinical trials and clinical studies. How are you handling those patients? So we, you know, a lot of people talk about urgent or emergent care. I, I like to talk about essential care because I'm not sure anyone can say that an injection is an emergency, but it's essential, particularly to our AMD patients. Well, we're in AMD clinical trials and those people are getting treated in their clinical trials. So I think it's very important to maintain those visits. But as Rishi said, we're streamlining them and we're getting guidance from the sponsors of the clinical trials to collect just the, the bare essential data and provide protocol treatments. Um, so all the clinical trial patients that are currently enrolled are coming in and we have put screening and new randomizations uh, on pause. And, and that's been agreed upon and universal across all of our clinical trials. Now, Nancy, are you doing anything specific to your clinic to try and decrease the number of patients in the clinic, uh, improve the flow in the clinic? Are you having people that bring the patients wait in the car? Are you doing temperature checks? And then finally, are you deferring anything like visual acuity uh, in the fellow eye, IOP checks and whatnot? So um, good question. You know, we, we have 
almost everyone's brought to the office by someone else. And so we are asking the caregiver to stay in the car. Uh, exceptions would be people who can't walk well, patients with dementia, um, you know, some ex extenuating circumstances, but really we just want the patient in our office. They are getting their temperature checked as is all staff who enter the building. They're getting a, a history. We're taking a history of any international travel within 14 days or any domestic travel to states that have been identified as hotspots, hot zones, including Florida, New York, California. And we're asking those people not to come into our office. We're referring them to a university where uh, they may have more um, PPEs to properly see patients with risk factors. I'll tell you, our surgery center in our main office, uh, we shut it down because there's no elective surgeries. But another reason is we ran out of masks in uh, the surgery center. And we are trying to get additional masks at the present time. And you really can't get any. And we went to hospitals where we're on staff and they said, no, we can't give you any masks. Um, you'll have to ask your colleagues. So I'm, I'm wearing a mask. My front desk staff is wearing masks. All my technicians are wearing masks. We're wearing eye protection. We're wearing scrubs that you know, we, we change out of before we leave the building. Um, but I think uh, it's appropriate that people really on the front lines of people who are testing positive for the COVID-19 virus are getting the PPEs and getting the masks. Um, but I think small private practices like ours may have some trouble. Nancy, do you cover any um, emergency rooms for on-call services or anything like that? I do not, actually. I just cover the emergencies for uh, my practice, Pepco's Vision Institute. Uh, I take a rotating call at a community hospital, and fortunately, my months are in October. Um, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not facing that difficulty, but I have done my emergency surgeries in the hospital, and the hospital, the community hospital, is following the protocols that, that we're discussing here. And do you do anything different now with patients as they come in? Are you going more towards injection onlys with these patients? Are you deferring anything like IOP checks as patients come in? No, I'm not actually. And I'm, and I'm pretty glad. I had someone who was coming in for a, a steroid injection, uh, gets a steroid injection every three months. And the, t and the tendency would be to say, hey, you know, let's just give the injection. The pressure was high and it caused me to change around her IOP management and defer the injection. So I, I think there are still some things we don't want to defer. And, and I think an, a vision IOP check and for the appropriate patient an OCT. But we are certainly streamlining how many rooms they go into. Uh, we're, we're matching a technician to a patient so that that patient only comes into contact with two people, the technician and me. Because the normal office flow, they might get dilated, then they might, um, you know, have someone else do their OCT, then they might have another technician who assists with the injection. And what we've done is we've married a single technician to a patient so that it minimizes the patient's contact and, and hopefully is, is safer exposure for the patients coming in. You know, there was a, a recent survey sent out by the ASRS asking kind of, I think it was actually Retina World Congress that sent this out, asking how you manage certain things. Um, 
one of which was you're called in by an emergency room to laser a tear in a patient that has a productive cough or a cough and a fever. What would you do in that situation, Nancy? Well, I think I'd ask for a PPE if I'm in the hospital doing a, a laser procedure. I think people still need health care in the era of the COVID-19. Um, you know, I heard Rishi say he's got an eight-hour turnaround time. Probably retinal tear could wait eight hours to see if that patient's positive or not. Um, we don't have that in Missouri right now. It's still about a 24 to 48-hour turnaround. Um, but I think healthcare providers have to be protect ourselves, have to protect patients, um, but still provide regular care in these emergent situations to the best of our ability. Let's move on to Sunir. Sunir, you're in kind of the hottest hotbed of this, not quite New York City, but very close in Philadelphia. I think last I checked, you had close to 500 cases in Philadelphia. Are you feeling the impact of this, Sunir, on your day-to-day -day life and in your work life? Absolutely. So the hottest spot in our state is actually the county in which we live. And as um, my colleagues were talking about, the main nidus of it was a physician who was abroad in Iran, came back from the U.S. and then spread it. Um, and he was a pediatric cardiologist. And that then infected a number of the local students and that shut the schools down. So our whole community is basically a ghost town. Um, there's essentially nobody on the road. The governor last week changed uh, the recommendation from just sort of avoid travel to you are required to stay at home unless you are an essential business. And so it's really just fundamentally altered our whole lives. The kids are all off of school um, and our practices have changed dramatically. We are on conference calls as a group every other night or so to try to figure out, you know, how to adapt because the recommendations that we made as a group two weeks ago may or may not be appropriate today. And have, have you had anybody in your practice test positive, any staff test positive? No, thankfully, as of right now, we have not. But with such a big group, I think, you know, there's some chance that somebody will. Because of that, you know, we've been pretty proactive in reducing the number of patients that are coming in. So we're calling all non-essential patients to encourage them not to come in. We're pretty rigorously screening all the new patients. So people who are coming in for things that can wait, there was a placmenal screening that was put on my schedule for today. I asked them to get rescheduled for some point in the future to try to minimize the number of patients that have come in. We fortunately and unfortunately have had to furlough a number of our staff, mostly for their own benefit. We didn't have a lot of patients coming in and we had a lot of staff that were confined in small areas and we thought for everybody's safety we would limit their exposure to patients as well. So it's really changed every aspect of our personal life as well as our professional life. Are you doing anything on a patient-to-patient -patient basis with um, anything different with your flow, your workflow, imaging, anterior segment examination, anything like that? Yeah, we're doing things pretty similarly to the way that Rishi and Nancy were illustrating, which is sort of interesting. You know, we're all in three different parts of the country. And although we've been comparing notes with a lot of people, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to Rishi and Nancy about it. But I think a lot of us have sort of intuitively come to a similar approach to patients. We're minimizing how often they move around. We're minimizing how often we dilate them. We're doing bare bones examination, trying to safely extend patients out that we think can be extended. Um, so, you know, that's been very different. Uh, the patients appreciate it. You know, they, 
The biggest concern is actually from the adult child of our older patients who really, you know, they say, mom, you know, you're 85 years old. We don't want you to leave the house and go to the doctor's office. But the parent then says, you know, I need my injection. And so when they come into the building and they get their temperature checked and they have the screening questions and they see us all wearing some sort of mask and gloves and minimizing our contact with them, when they come into the waiting room and they see that every other or every second chair has a do not sit here sign on it to force social distancing in the waiting room, I think that gives everybody at least some sense of relief that we're trying to strike a balance between getting their essential eye appointment taken care of in a timely manner and minimizing their potential risk for getting COVID-19. So Nir, you have a huge practice with lots of uh, variation in partner's age and things like that. Have you done anything differently with your older partners? Yeah, we have a couple of partners um, that are more senior. One of them we asked to not come into work for at least two weeks. How that changes over the next few weeks is this lingers, I don't know. Then we have had a couple of other partners that are older that have had some health issues that we're encouraging them to reduce how often they come in, but we're leaving it to their discretion. And being in Philadelphia, where in all likelihood you're gonna see the impact of this before some of us in the Midwest, do you anticipate being pulled in to the front lines of this at any point? Do you think they're gonna utilize Will's Eye Institute as a hospital, doctors to run ICUs? How do you foresee this playing out? So, you know, we're sort of a hybrid between Rishi's academic practice and Nancy's private practice. So we are not directly employed by Thomas Jefferson University, which is our academic affiliation. So I don't think they could require us to come in. If it looks like we get a big epidemic, they may you know, request help. And I think a lot of us would do what we could to try to help. I don't know that I would be doing anybody a favor to try to run a ventilator. I wasn't very good at it when I was doing my internship and I'm sure I haven't gotten better with time. Um, but obviously we'll do our best is, you know, try to help our patients in whatever way we can. Are you doing anything different with training? Are you uh, having fellows still scrubbing the cases? Are you having fellows come to clinic? How are you handling that? So that's gotten bare bones. You know, at Wills, we have a lot of lectures. We have a lecture almost every day. Those have gotten canceled or moved to the web and, you know, using web platforms. Um, all of our in-person research meetings have gotten tabled. We'll likely start those again up again as webinars. Our residents were trying to, our fellows, we're trying to get them not to have unnecessary exposure. So a lot of them have to work in the Wills IER because that does a lot of the important urgent work in the Metro Philly area, but unnecessary patient encounters we're trying to get them not to do. They're involved still in some of the OR cases because we're trying to balance out, you know, their learning, which is essential during this phase of their education versus unnecessary exposure. And we think that the OR, because we're all masked and gowned and the patient has a long gown on them, we think that the risk there is pretty minimal. So we're still letting them work in the OR, although our OR numbers have dropped precipitously. What would you say you're down to now percentage-wise? If you were 100% a month ago volume, what's your percentage at at this point? So in clinic, we're probably down to 30% of what we were before. In the OR, we're probably down to 10 to 15 percent of what we were before. And this is something that's controversial, but the Academy and ASRS have both come out with guidelines around what are urgent cases and emergent cases. Uh, Sunir, what are some of the things that you think are urgent? What are you, some of the things that hit a gray zone? And when would you consider doing those cases, such as macular holes? 
And so that's, we've struggled with that. You know, retinal detachments, endophthalmitis, hemorrhagic choroidals, those are all pretty straightforward. You know, what do you do if you have a monocular patient who has a larger macular hole who's no longer functioning very well? You know, how do you deal with them? Or you have a diabetic who has one good eye and now has a moderate vitreous hemorrhage and is sort of incapacitated. You know, where do they fit in? And we're trying to use our best judgment in those cases. We're encouraging the diabetic hemorrhages to wait and see if it clears, but we don't want those patients to suffer unnecessarily either. So we're taking those as a case-by-case basis. I don't think you can come up with a specific, you know, written in stone approach to patients because a lot of what we do does fall in that gray area. So you have to use your best judgment. That's great, Sunir. I'm going to come back to Rishi now. I see him nodding his head. Rishi, um, is Cole or is is Cleveland Clinic looking over your shoulder to see what kind of cases you're doing? Is the state of Ohio asking you to justify these cases, or do you have pretty pretty much free reign? No. So we we worked in concert with the governor of Ohio, uh, Mike DeWine, and we've really carved out what what those cases are like across the board, not even in ophthalmology, but uh, in other specialties too. And, you know, ophthalmology is unique. We can at least um, discuss the, the limitations of patient's vision and sight, what that means for our patients. And so we've been able to put together a comprehensive list across the board for all of our specialties in ophthalmology, working with each of the subject matters experts in each of our, our specialty fields and came up with a really good comprehensive list where we all can agree upon. They're not looking over our shoulders, but it's a it's a case by case basis, as Sunir said. I like that idea, and uh, and and there are situations like uh, yesterday where I have a patient who has a macular hole, which, you know, was in her her better seeing eye, and she's noticing vision progression, and truly she had a progression from a stage two to a stage four hole, uh, with an operculum, and now is really uh, dropped three or four lines of vision in the past two weeks of that time too. So. So again, I think it, we're, we're sort of building the plane like we're, when we're flying it at this point. We, we need to look at each case and figure out what the benefits are. Uh, but certainly we're trying to, to work with our colleagues to get their best judgment on this because clearly I, I can't tell a plastic surgeon or a um, you know, anterior segment surgeon what I think is appropriate or not. I need their him, input and we're working as a team to kind of identify those cases and determine which ones are really urgent. And Sunir brought this point up, Rishi. He had, they furloughed some staff. Um, are you all furloughing staff? Are you laying off staff? And then how do you plan to gear back up for the volume of patients we're going to see? Yeah, so I, I think, so, so far we have not uh, done any furloughing or laying off. Um, we have uh, reappropriated staff whenever we possibly can. So for example, some of our nurses that were in our operating rooms are helping with the screening process that goes in with uh, the patients who are coming in for the drive-through testing facility we have, or maybe in the, in the main uh, hospital, they're helping with uh, you know, taking care of PACU patients or, or things like that. In our hospital, in our opt- ophthalmology institute itself, our optometrists are doing a lot of virtual visits. Uh, we have a, a significant uptake of virtual stuff they're doing. And, and there's a lot of stuff they can do. They're learning as they're going along what's possible. Some of even our pediatric ophthalmologists are doing virtual visits now. They're doing um, you know, discussions with the patient where they send them the vision card and vision testing and stuff ahead of time and then sit with them on the phone through either uh, FaceTime or Google Duo and do a great job assessing that patient. So we're learning as we're going along. They're trying to do more of those things. Ultimately, they have put in place a sort of workforce transition, which has not been announced yet. 
but we won't be doing events related things. We'll probably be doing more frontline work where we're seeing overseeing, uh, you know, general day-to-day activities and patients who are primary care patients. And essentially we work in a team of teams approach. So it's not like we're going to be doing this on our own. If, if that comes to that stage, it has not come at all at that stage, but if it comes to that stage, we'll be working alongside other practitioners, which will help us guide uh, what we can do and what we can uh, fairly comfortably um, see and do on our own. So it's going to be a really evolving approach as we go forward, but nothing as at this, at this point in time. And Nancy, I'll go to you with the same question that I asked Rishi. Uh, are you all furloughing staff and how has your volume changed over the last, um, last two or three weeks from a clinic standpoint, from a surgery standpoint? Well, it's really reassuring to me to hear from Rishi and to hear from Sunir because, um, you know, I believe uh, they said their volume clinic was now at about 30% of what it was before, and the surgery volume is now 10 to 15% of what it was before. I agree with those numbers completely. Um, the retina service, uh, we're, we still have about three-fourths of the retina service staff working, um, and the anterior segment uh, service has furloughed just about everyone along with one-fourth of the retina service uh, staff. And furlough, it's a temporary layoff and it really helps patients now file for unemployment, except some unemployment benefits. But our practice is still providing both the employee and the employer portions of the benefits package. And we're really optimistic. We're hoping that in a month or two, these people come right back. Um, I think the furlough solution is probably the best for a seamless transition of everybody coming back to work as soon as the economy picks up again and the situation normalizes. Um, But John, I actually just wanted to to mention one thing we haven't touched on. We're all seeing urgent or emergent patients or those essential patients who need their injections. I can tell you from my experience, every single patient has said thank you. Every single patient truly appreciates that their doctor, their retina specialist has opened the office to give them the care that they need. And I was chuckling because the adult child of the 80-year-old or 85-year-old patient doesn't want their parent to come to the office and the parent says, no, I have to go. And they show up because they know they they have an essential visit and both the adult child and the parent are, are very grateful for the precautions we're clearly taking in our office and our efforts to keep them safe and our staff safe. So I just wanted to, to throw that in. You know, Nancy, that's an absolutely excellent point. And we hear the same thing. Patients are just so grateful. And I think sometimes we depreciate the fact that we're not on the front lines, you know, and I appreciate it. But when I think about those doctors that are risking their lives in the ICU, and in the emergency rooms, I kind of sometimes, you know, um, just sort of hang my head a little bit that we are in clinic seeing these healthy patients and screening patients as, as much as we do. But in reality, we do put ourselves and our staff put themselves at risk uh, to some degree seeing a large number of the public and patients are very grateful and we certainly want to support our colleagues who are at higher risk than us and God bless them for what they do as far as that goes. Um, I want to, first of all, thank each of you for being on here. I think it's been very reassuring to hear that colleagues across the country are facing the same challenges that we face 
here in Kentucky and, and just all over the place and are handling it in such a similar scenario. I want to thank New Retina Radio for putting this on. I would love to have all of you all come back on in a couple of weeks and see how things have changed and evolved and talk a little bit more about what we're doing now. I think it's really important because as Rishi alluded to, this is not a static process. You don't just decide this is the plan. It changes daily. And Sunir said they're on web, webinars with each other every night or on phone calls. Absolutely, it is almost as much time outside of the work uh, as in work um, in trying to figure this whole thing out. And I wanna thank you all for being on. And uh, once again, thank New Retina Radio for this, uh, how COVID-19 affects retina practices. Look for more episodes along this series with these panelists and more panelists as we go forward and reach uh, out to other people to try and figure out the best way to tackle these channel challenges. Thank you for watching. Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsor, Allergan. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic health care professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing and listening to this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. Any information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this webcast podcast are for general information only. Reliance on any information provided by this webcast podcast, BMC's employees, or medical professionals presenting content for this webcast podcast is solely at your own risk and should not be considered as medical or professional advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned in this webcast podcast. And information from this webcast podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. No reproduction, rebroadcasting, or editing of this webcast podcast may be made without written permission of BMC. Inquiries should be directed to Adam Kravchek Esquire at adam at bmctoday.com. BMC expressly declaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this webcast podcast or the information, opinions, and consent presented in this webcast podcast.